Welcome to episode number 53 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Interest rates have jumped up again and they've impacted land sales. This is the latest in a series of interest rate increases that started in March of 2022, and it's resulted in a shock reaction within real estate markets. With interest rates hovering around zero for the past few years, these increases have created a confusing environment for land buyers and sellers. Today, we're talking with Jackson Takish, Chief Economist at the Federal Agricultural Mortgage Corporation, or as you probably know it, Farmer Mac also an organization that managed to provide me with a nickname in high school. This is the federal organization that provides the market for agricultural landowners to get loans. This also means that we are talking with one of the most knowledgeable individuals in the United States on the topic of interest rate impact on land. Now sit back and enjoy. I'm sitting here with Jackson Takish of Farmer Mac. Uh, Jackson, you were the chief economist at Farmer Mac and an organization that I, that I, that I love just because of the name. Um, so uh, yeah, Jackson, so tell me, you know, chief economist there, how did you get to Farmer Mac and, and sort of professionally, what, what's your journey to, to where you are now? Uh, well, thanks for having me, Mac. Happy to be here. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, a fairly uh, long and winding journey to get uh, to where I am today with a, a great company, Farmer Mac. I grew up in a small town in Kentucky called Scottsville, Kentucky, and I went to school at a small liberal arts college in Kentucky called Center College. So I was a Kentucky kid, born and raised, grew up uh, uh, doing all sorts of farm handy things as you tend to do in small rural agricultural communities. So, you know, baling hay, tossing hay, cutting tobacco, setting tobacco, you name it. Uh, I was doing a little bit of it and uh, never in a million years when I got my degree in economics did I think I was going to get back into agriculture. I thought I'd seen the last of my agricultural days, but uh, found my way to Washington, D.C. A friend of mine had a had a spot on a couch. I jumped on it and then found my way to this great company called Farmer Mac where I joined as a research associate and kind of spun around inside the company doing different jobs and working in credit, working in finance, working in uh, uh, the data science team. So doing a lot of different things around the organization and really discovered a passion for the agricultural economy, the things that uh, really drive the business uh, at Farmer Mac and at banks and and, f- and farm lending institutions across the country, and really developed uh, a talent and a skill for talking about that stuff and, and going around and talking to farmers and bankers about the state of the ag economy, what things are affecting them, how they should think about them, uh, and writing this great publication called The Feed that we put out quarterly on Farmer Max website. And here we are today, and I'm talking to you about uh, all things ag economy and uh, interest rates and how that might affect land values. It's, it's, it's very, very fitting that, that your exact profession is exactly what we're talking about today. So <laughs> I, I find that very, very uh, convenient. Um, so so let's jump right in. Uh, you know. We and, and I want to take this from a from a base level of understanding. the The big news throughout the last year has been interest yeah. rate hikes, and and the key thing that everybody says is is oh the Fed just raised the rate again, and it, it comes about in conversations that like even understanding what that means is it can get lost really easily because it's yeah. in the news but it's not explained. Um, and and again we're talking about the Federal Reserve as a lending institution basically. Um, and, and 
raising interest rates, just tell tell us from like a base level what what is the chain that we're talking about here? Why you know how how the Fed functions? Because I want to take it from a one on one level. This yeah. is something where like it's a question that I, I think a lot of people don't want to ask because it's like I don't know how that works. I don't want right, to right right because I don't want to get put on the spot. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. It, it, can can you explain to me how the Fed works and and what this what this whole hike thing means? Yeah, sure. Why? Well, I mean, it's a it's a uh, kind of a throwaway comment, right? Like, oh, my interest rates are interest rates went up again, right? Interest yeah. rates went up again. But what does it really mean? How does it impact uh, farmers, ranchers, rural Americans? All all that kind of stuff is uh, it's complicated, right? Easy thing. It's not like buying a pizza. But you now the cost of my pizza went up. Like I know what that means. I bought it. I'm paying more for a pizza. Well, what does interest rate? What do interest rates mean? What do they affect? And um, uh, how does the Fed's action impact the farmers? That's uh, I'll I'll take my best stab at it, and uh, we can just kind of talk our way through it uh, if it does get a little heady at times. Because somebody say you know the the Federal Reserve is a complicated system. It's not. Uh, it is not making sneakers. Right. It's doing. It's managing capital across a wide and varied economic system. So it's complicated. So jump in here. If I'm getting too in the weeds on something or if I, you find that uh, I'm wandering a little bit, please feel free to jump in. I'll just, the way I think about I'll just interest go to sleep rates, on the camera. No. Right. <laughs> uh, I always think about interest rates as the price of money, right? So when, when you think about how much does money cost, that's a, well, I pay for things in money, right? So the money doesn't cost anything because that's what I use to pay for things. But when I think about the price of money, it is the amount of interest that I have to pay to borrow it or the amount of interest that I'm going to get paid to lend it, right? That becomes how much that money is worth to other people outside of myself. So interest rates are really the price of money. And when you have too much of something, right? Anytime you have too much in supply, this is a common problem in agriculture, right? Sometimes we grow way too much corn. What happens to the price of corn when you've got way too much of it? Well, price goes down. Similarly, when you have too much money circulating in a system, uh, the price of that money goes down. And all of a sudden, what do people want to do? They want to borrow it and spend it. That's what they want to do. When, when their money is widely available, what do they want to do? They want to borrow it and spend it. And for the last, say, you know, two years leading up to 2022, so 2020 and 2021, the Fed was like, we want people to spend money. We want so they lowered the price of it. They take the took interest rates and they lowered them and made it easier for people to borrow money and spend money. And they basically effectively lowered the, the price of money, right? Took interest rates down uh, using the one big tool that they have to do that. And they made people more interested in spending money. So they were trying to jolt the economy by making it cheap to borrow money, lowered the price of it, lowered the effective interest rate, and then that's what consumers did to support the economy in 2020 and 2021. Now, the downside of cheap money is, well, if you have too much of it circulating around and people are bidding on a fixed amount of goods, assets, what happens to the prices of those assets? They start to rise, right? So uh, we said we had too many, too much money chasing too few goods. And in 2021 and 22, we started to see this thing called inflation start to rear its head. So the price of goods, the price of stuff that we were all paying for, groceries, uh, uh, houses, uh, you know, you name it, pretty much everything was rising in price because the price of money was so low, everyone wanted to borrow as much as they could and spend as much as they could. So with too much money chasing too few goods, we saw the prices of goods start to rise and the Federal Reserve had to say, wait a minute, I need to make money more expensive because right now there's just too much of it 
and it's chasing too, too many goods and I've got prices rising. So I'm going to increase the cost of money. And that's going to do two things. Number one, it's going to immediately slow people down from borrowing. They're not going to borrow as much and just put new additions on their houses or buy a new car. They're going to just slow down the amount of money that they're spending, but it's also uh, going to take money out of the system. It's going to say, Hey, look, I can now invest it at a better rate. So instead of spending it on a hot dog, I'm now going to put it in the bank and save it for a hot dog in five years. Right? So that's, the, the Federal Reserve's reaction to too little money or too much money is to adjust interest rates to try to get the right balance of money circulating in the economy and uh, price levels in the in that economy. That's the really the Fed's balancing act that they have to do. Gotcha. And and the 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 low interest rate that we experience, like a zero percent interest rate, right? And in which I want to I want to put you ask you too as far as knowing the difference between the Fed rate and right. bank rate and mortgage rate because those are two different things. Um, but the the zero interest rate is that sort of a, an unprecedented thing historically in terms of federal interest rate. Yes, yeah, so it's very unusual if you look at the history of Federal Reserve policy. It's about 110 years, right? The, yeah. the Federal Reserve system has been around. They never wanted to get to zero. And really, the first time they did was during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. They took it to zero in order to do as much as they could to stimulate capital flows. Everybody was kind of, you know, really bearing down and hunkering down in 2008 during the financial crisis. And the Fed really wanted to encourage money to flow through the economy. So they really did an unprecedented thing, kind of took it down basically to zero and made money effectively at the banking level, effectively free to borrow as much as you could and move things through the financial sector. They left it at zero for a long time after 2008, uh, started to raise it a little bit, you know, in, in uh, the years after the financial crisis, but then during the, the pandemic in 2020, they brought it back down to zero. So we've been at zero a lot in the last 10, almost 15 years. Right. Uh, and that's not normal. I think a lot of people kind of got used to it. A lot of people maybe who were coming out of college in that timeline or were new in the financial sector in that timing, think of zero as like the normal. But if you look at the, you know, 50, 60 years before that, you know, five, six, 7% was sort of normal. And that's where we are today. We're at 5%. That's sort of the normal range. And we've been at zero for a long time and people kind of got used to it, I think. I, and that's, and that's definitely a thing because the conversation keeps on happening lately. And I, and I've, I just saw, I read a report of lenders seeing people getting mortgages right now saying, I'm going to do this, even though I can't afford it. And then I'm going to refinance when the rate drops back down. And, and the instantaneous reaction is like, Whoa, yeah, don't count on that. Like it, this is the interest rate where it is now is still historically kind of on the low range. Because we've seen interest rates as high as fourteen percent, and and well, I mean, what's the? You probably know this. What's the highest it's ever been? Yeah. So the policy, the Fed funds target, got up to nearly twenty percent during the nineteen eighties. Yeah, it was uh, a Fed, a, a Fed fighting really rampant inflation after the nineteen seventies, drove interest rate policy interest rates up to you know sort of peak levels in order to combat that, and then brought it back down slowly over the next like decade. Right. So it, and so a 5% range is being sort of normal. Like if, if that's the mindset, I, I don't think that should be <laughs> Yeah. So to count on it, like, because nothing can be counted on anyways. Um, so tell me about just, and this is again, for, for anybody listening, what's the difference between, so when people say the federal reserve rate is zero, 
that yeah. doesn't mean anything to a lot of people because they don't actually see, it's not like I yeah. went out and bought my house and got a 0% interest rate on my home loan. Um, or, or again, a property or, or something like that. I still had the lens. So tell me, right. talk a little bit about that structure if you could. Sure. So, so the rate that always gets referenced and tossed around and talked about in, in the news stories is that that policy rate, the federal funds rate. And that's set by a, gr- a small committee inside of the Federal Reserve System called the FOMC that eight times a year kind of gets together. And their whole goal is to make sure that operations of monetary policy are working effectively and really trying to achieve the Fed's goal of price stability as well as full employment. Those are two things the Fed's keeping our eye on, right? Price stability, our prices you know, sort of holding, are they violently changing? We want, we want to avoid that. We want a stable price environment and we want to fully employ uh, American workers. Um, so eight times a year, they get together. We just had one in um, uh, mid July or late July. Um, and in those meetings, they decide what is the rate at which banks are going to borrow from us, basically. So, so they're setting the the rate at which banks will borrow from the Federal Reserve and each other in order to meet reserve requirements. So think of that as the the wholesale rate that a bank can borrow at uh, or lend at, so they can lend to other banks at that rate. Um, that is the the bare minimum rate that they need to uh, 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 earn on other assets on their assets, because otherwise, if they can't earn that rate, they would just park their money at the Fed, let other banks borrow it, and they would earn you know that five and a half percent that we're currently sitting at as the target today, as the upper range of the target. So, it's the wholesale rate that banks can borrow from each other at inside of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, hard to get a retail, you know, retail um, or or consumer loan that's going to have a lower interest rate because lenders who operate who participate in that Federal Reserve System could just turn around and borrow and get a better return lending to other banks. So that becomes like the lowest rate that you're going to see short-term rate that you're going to see in the the economics engine. And then from there, you've got layers on top of that, that the bank needs to earn return on their capital. There are spread targets, there are credit targets, there are all sorts of things that go on top of that. And that's why you see retail loans, like a, a, a mortgage uh, being something like the base rate plus 2.5%. Or a farm loan, uh, if you're looking at production loans, might be uh, 200. You know the the base uh, Fed funds rate plus two to three hundred basis points, or two or three percent. Um, so so you're never going to see. You know if you do see it, boy, you must be a really good credit if you can get that same the Fed funds rate as your as your loan rate. But that's the rate your bank's going to get. So they're probably going to add something on top of that to meet their capital requirements and their returns to shareholders. And the retail credits go at something higher than that Fed funds rate. Yeah, That's, that's the, really that's the only policy yeah. rate out there. The Fed funds rate is that policy rate. All the other rates that you see are all market driven. So it's just people borrowing and, and, and lending at different rates that drive those uh, rates around. It's that policy Fed funds rate is the one that's set by the Fed. Yeah. And I think that's the structure that, 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 to, to speak to that's really valuable for people to get their heads around it is, is banks lend people money. And in yep. order to lend people money, you got to get that from somewhere. You have to have the money, the reserve on hand to cover you. And so they get that from the federal reserve. And so if the federal reserve rate is zero, that goes to the bank and then that from the bank to the consumer, but then the banks, you know, every business is in business to make money. So that's they right. can make money off the money that they give you but they're able to borrow that money at zero. So that gives you a lower rate overall. And, and so that structure that you're, you know, like you get your home loan at 6% or whatever, that means the bank is making 
6%. And if that bank, you know, like you said, there's banks that borrow from other banks too. And so each one has a market. It's, it's imagine it like retail goods. You know, if you buy a hat online, it probably costs $10 to make that hat. And then, you know, $2 to embroider it. And then the company that sells it to you bought it for maybe $15. And then they're going to sell it to you for 28 because they need to make their profit. Same system, but just with money, right? That's a great way to put it. There is a, a series of transactions costs that it takes to get all the way from sort of the, the core financial system all the way to you as a borrower. And there are going to be costs along that way that get incurred and that drive up the cost of money to you, just the same way as any supply chain is going to have costs along that that uh, supply chain. So does the cost of money. Right. So I want to ask you an opinion question now. All right. Um, do you think that, so, so what, you know, we, we saw COVID hit and, you know, lockdown, there was a lot of paranoia about the economy. Everyone started, started reacting at the front end of this, like, oh my gosh, the world's ending. Economies are collapsing, which yeah, I, looking at it, you know, in that no one's ever, we, we don't even know what that is. We don't even know what that experience is. So overreaction is really the only reaction at that point, because you just don't know what's going to happen. So they marked everything to zero. Did they keep it there for too long? That's a tough question, right? So I mean, yeah, yeah. There, were, there was a lot to balance in that time. You go back into that, the the soup of that. And, the, you know, you had homeowners who weren't sure if they were going to be able to make their payments. You had renters, you had, uh, uh, you know, securities backed by, you know, billions and billions of mortgages. So there were a lot of things that the Federal Reserve had to take into uh, account, not to mention that there were massive layoffs and the whole, you know, the structural uh, integrity of the economy seemed to collapse there for about six months. Uh, and I think the goal became, Hey, we want to stabilize prices and we want to, uh, maximize employment. And that might take time to do that. Right. I think that was sort of the commitment from the fed at that time. If you go back and read statements from chair Powell, uh, during that time, well, I thought he was a great voice of, uh, stability and reason along with, uh, you know, individuals out of the treasury and the white house. I think everybody, really did a good job sort of getting together and be like, Hey, we're going to stabilize things. Like our goal here is stability. Um, whether or not that they could have made changes sooner or later, I think, you know, that's certainly easy to Monday morning quarterback that and look back right. and say, Hey, I think the right time to start was probably, you know, six months before they did. Um, and I certainly was in there in that camp of, Hey, I think I, I can look back and say when we should have started raising into or changing the price of money. Um, however, it's a, it was a difficult position to be in. And I think they did a remarkable job of managing the uncertainty that they did in the time that they did. And you, you get into the 2021, 2000, early 22, and you start to see that inflation, you know, the price of everything start to spiral. I think that was really, there were a lot of voices out there saying, Hey, you know, maybe prices are rising too fast. And I think the fed got on top of it, you know, in a timely manner, they did, you know, they did what they needed to do and started raising interest rates. Um, would I money morning quarterback and say, should they have done it six months earlier? They, they could have done it six months earlier. And I think it would have been more effective. Uh, however, they did it when they did it. And I think the effect was um, important. We started to see inflation come back down. Inflation has started to come back to a more typical level. So, you know, Hey, raising the interest rates when they did, maybe it was a little late, but it had the effect of slowing the economy, cooling the economy off. And that's ultimately what they were trying to do. Yeah. I was going to say it's because, the situation that we were in it, with with a pandemic that no one's ever seen before and it's 
like imagine it like if you if you had never seen fire before you might try to put it out with gasoline you never know like you if it's an unknown and it's on your doorstep and you have no idea how to react to it you there's not really a wrong reaction at the time but like you use the tools that you have to deal with the job and they did that and drove the economy well then nobody could have possibly predicted probably and that's I'm, this is kind of a statement slash question for you yeah is nobody could have predicted an environment where people had cash on hand and just wanted to throw it around. Like people started buying like crazy during this time because nobody was driving for work. Um, you know, a lot of the overhead in people's lives was not there. And the people that, you know, the people that didn't get laid off in the service economy had money to spend and things went wild. And then the infrastructure for the, all the companies had to shut down their supply chain because they thought that everything was going to collapse. And then, spending goes crazy and it's like okay i shut my hat distribution down because i thought my business was going to fold and now everybody wants a hat and so now now i've got a markup to speed up the delivery and get it there and so it's it the the political conversation is crazy because we're going through an election cycle and everybody's trying to blame everybody for everyone's yeah. problems but it just comes down to a supply and demand problem that we're going through right now and it's done it for everything and now the federal reserve has started hiking rates and now that's impacting with with an economy that's been on fire, it looks like it's impacting everything negatively. And that's where I want to kind of tie this back into farming and land markets. Um, you know, interest rates are going up right now. And that's something they had to do to keep broccoli from costing $50. You know, it's like you because the demand's so high for product and the delivery costs more now. And now we have like gasoline prices and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Like gasoline's way up there and supply chains are finally getting back together and, and prices are coming down. But now we have the, the the interest rate rises and that's affecting borrowing. So what is that, how is that impacting the land market, the borrowing yeah. market for land? And then, you know, we can talk about inputs there as well, but I mean, I wanna, obviously we work with land, but um, you know, I don't want to isolate just one thing because the economy is much more nuanced, but it's good. Talk about that a little bit if you could. Sure. Uh, we, so we'll start with land because that's where my see, well, my perspective at uh, Farmer Mac, we're the secondary market for ag real estate. So this is something that's near and dear uh, to, to my uh, function here at Farmer Mac. So we'll start there. But I do, I agree with you. I think we should, we should talk a little bit about the production costs as well. Yeah. Because yeah. that's probably more immediate impact. Um. In the land markets, you know, a lot of uh, real estate debt, so a lot of people who are either buying land or refinancing land over the last four or five years, were able to do so at very attractive levels. So if you bought a farm and you used leverage to do it, or you had some debt and you were able to refinance it down, you're looking at something like a three, four or 5% mortgage rate, very low levels. And in a lot of the deals that we saw at coming through, um, uh, our channels, we're looking at 10, 15 or 30 year fixed rate financing. So that means their interest rates are not going to change for 10, 15 or even 30 years. Um, those folks are, are impacted absolutely zero by the rise in interest rates, right? Cause they fixed their interest rates on that property at those levels for the duration of the loan. Uh, and that's something that's kind of unique. If you go back to 1980s, you hear a lot of people talk about the farm financial crisis of the 1980s. And are we seeing parallels today? And my answer to them is always, uh, ir you know, irrevocably, no, we are not because more farmers did more uh, borrowing at longer terms for lower levels and have sort of fixed those costs. They're not going to see those costs rise at the same level 
that they did in say 1978 to 1980. Um, so I think that's one, you know, really important nuanced point here today is that a lot of people took interest rate risk off the table in 2020 and 2021. And those folks are not worried at all about the current level of interest rates. They're kind of riding it out and uh, uh, their land costs are fixed for the life of those loans as long as they keep paying as agreed. So it, um, it really quick, ahead. just to, to, because that is brought up a lot is that like the 1979 sort of like the, the, when, when farmers went belly up. Right. Yep. And, and the, the similarity that everybody's seeing is the price of land shoot through the ceiling for food producing lands. And so everyone's tying it in. So yeah. if you could explain sort of like what drove that during that time period, and you just spoke to the fixed rate kind of, making things stable and unwind, but sort of what, what drove it back then to, to kind of like, Oh, okay. Like to, to highlight that. Yeah. So in, in the the 1970s, you go back to and study sort of what was driving the, the, that run up in land values. Um, not dissimilar to what we saw in the last couple of years. You saw grain prices run up quite a bit. You saw huge gains in efficiency on the farm. Uh, and then we had a grain deal with uh, the USSR, Soviet Union at the time, uh, all of which said, hey, look, we have a huge demand for wheat, wheat exports, export markets were flying. Uh, so plant fence for the fence, right? The famous Earl Butts, you know, uh, statement that made farmers everywhere famous for being incredibly efficient producers of food products. So people borrowed a lot of money. Interest rates were relatively low back then. So they borrowed a lot of money, bought as much land as they could, and started to build up the asset values and the prices of uh, of land through 1970s. In the 1980s, there was like a, a strange confluence of stuff that unwound. Basically, all those good things went negative. So we had the grain embargo, right? Uh, in the 1980s, cut the legs out of the demand. All that grain that we put into production in the 1970s, all of a sudden was creating supply that we couldn't deal with what happens when you have too much supply, price goes down. So the price went down and you had high interest rates. So interest rates started to move up uh, because of inflation. So you had this like weird combination of stuff that took revenue down, took supply too high and interest costs skyrocketed. The other thing is a lot of that land was leveraged with variable rate loans. So when interest rates went up, they didn't have that buffer period where they could, you know, sort of just ride it out. A lot of those interest rates immediately or within one or two years switched to market rates so that they had higher interest costs on that land almost immediately. So uh, it's a bad recipe, right? And a lot of people had to sell land or land was foreclosed upon and a, a lot of really horrible stories about families losing farms and properties. And we could have a whole session just on that, you know, <laughs> the three-year period, five-year period. Um, today, we did see the run-up in revenues really drive interest in the asset class. We saw, you know, some, some of those similarities in land value appreciation. But what's so interesting today, beyond, I think, interest costs being a little bit fixed and the product choices being a little bit more long-term, uh, if you look at the real gains in land values, like the the amount of appreciation in land value minus inflation, it's much more modest today than it was in the 1970s. 1970s, it was real gains of like 10 or 12%. This, the last couple of years, even though land values have risen a lot, if you consider the price of everything rose a lot, they didn't rise that much more than all the other stuff. So if, if land values went up 30% in two years, well, the cost of everything went up 20%. In two years. So you're looking at about 5% real appreciation per year. It doesn't sound quite as bad as like 30% over two years. 
Well, so did the cost of used cars, right? They went up 30% over the over two years. So land values relative to everything else went up in a, at a, what I would consider to be a fairly reasonable rate over the last two years. Yeah. And that's and then the big one there too, is the fact that everything was linked through or a lot, not everything, but was linked to variable yeah. rate borrowing. Like, so if I bought my farm at a 3% interest rate, but then overall interest goes to 10%, well, then my rate goes to like 10%. And all of a sudden I can't even afford to run my operation. I'm done. And now with a lot of people locked in, you're going to be paying the same rate for years and years. And it's like, as you look at the crises that have happened in the last you know, 30 years, that variable rate borrowing has sunk us like 10 times now. Like it is crazy. Um, but with where we're at now, and, and like, if you could, you wanted to talk to, I don't want to jump ahead because you were talking about jumping into inputs a little bit too. Um, let's, let's do that. Cause, cause it, 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 it matters that while the price of land has gone up, the price of food has gone up. There's also the input prices that, that go into that. If you can yeah. jump into that a little bit. Sure. Well, so I think more directly, so we say land value the, the or the land, uh, um, real estate expense, interest expense, isn't going to change that much. What what will change almost immediately is the cost of that production credit. So these are the loans that, you know, producers come back every year and renew their operating line. They use it to buy inputs. They put them in the ground and then they sell the crop and pay the, pay the bank back. Right. This is the sort of annual renewal uh, line of credit um, or intermediate loans that may be used to buy equipment and those kind of things like that. Those are almost always uh, short-term fixed or variable rate. Right. So these are the these that's the highest exposure that the farm sector has to interest rate risk is going to be on that production credit. And this will be the first year we've really seen it in 2022. Yes, the Fed was raising rates. And so banks had to slowly increase um, their retail credit rates, the rates that farmers would pay on their uh, operating debt. But it wasn't nearly as much as what we probably saw in March or April of, of 23. So when farmers were coming back to renew, the credits for the growing cycle in 23, now they're facing 200 basis points of increase. So that's really going to be the first time, 23 is really the first time we're going to see a sizable increase in production ag credit interest expense. Uh, it's not crazy. I mean, if you look at the levels, the overall levels, what USDA says farmers have in production credit, it's about a half of what they have in real estate. So really what farmers have done is push more debt onto the land and keep about the same levels of debt that they have in the production credit, which is um, pretty good. If you think about interest rate risk management and how they're going to manage uh, their interest rate risk, I feel pretty good about it. But this is going to be the first year that we see a lot more impact in production credit. And that's going to drive up the cost of producing food. And, and, and 23 is the year it's going to happen. Really skated by in 21 and 22. Maybe there were some other costs that were driving there, you know, transportation, labor, um, uh, uh, oh, of of course, you had you know fertilizer was a big one last year. Yeah, fertilizer. this year the big one we're gonna probably gonna be talking about is either the cost of water if you're maybe you know uh, hydrating stuff, uh, or you're gonna be talking more about the cost of interest. Gotcha. And then with with sort of how things have been structured over the last few years, and like we saw record gains across the country, like you know, with Kansas, uh, uh, Nebraska, Indiana, most yeah. of the Midwest states experienced the highest land values they've ever seen price yep. per acre. We saw, we saw land moving to like $24,000 per acre in terms of, of, you know, land values. Um, those, a lot of them are protected from interest rate risk. 
what I wanted to ask you too is, is there now that sort of the interest rates have sort of been stabilized, is there inflationary risk in that now that the price of goods has gone way up just due to demand, um, and that you know Ukraine's impacting that as well? If the price drops, um, if the inflation, so are are they now opened up to more inflationary risk or or I guess deflationary risk in in that respect? Um, is that sort of increasing market wide? Well, uh, I think that's an important distinction to make. Is it deflation or is it a reduction in inflation? Right. So those are kind of two. Okay. No. Let's let's go there. Yeah. No, they great. can be two different things, right? So so you can still see prices continue to go up at a slower pace. That's what the Fed's hoping for. They don't want to see deflation. They want to see prices go up, but at two percent per year instead of twelve. Right. Um, where the ag economy tends to go is we like inflation. Inflation is generally good for farming. It's generally good for uh, farm real estate. Uh, and it gives, you know, the grocery stores a chance to raise prices, which then gets passed through the supply chain back to the farmer. Uh, so in time, inflationary periods, the agricultural economy tends to do a little bit better than times when inflation is low or deflationary or negative. So I think you're exactly right, which we don't want to see in any industry, and I think the government tries to avoid this in every government and central bank tries to avoid deflation because that's when you get into a lot of downward spirals. So if prices start to go negative, everyone says, well, I'm just gonna wait and I'm gonna buy my thing. I'm gonna buy my my hot dog in two years instead of now, because I know that in two years, the hot dog's gonna be that much cheaper and they hold onto their money. And then, then you have consumer spending go down and all this bad stuff can happen. So deflation is really, I think what everyone in the policy sphere is trying to fight against. They do not wanna see deflation. Um, in the in the food sector, you typically don't see deflation. Typically, once consumers hit a level of what they're willing to pay at the grocery store, you may see very low inflation. You may see zero to one percent change in the grocery store. Or you may see temporarily, like meat prices go on sale, so uh, beef can be negative for a short period of time. But what tends to happen is you get to zero and not negative. So we don't see a lot of deflation, and and I'm and I'm hopeful that. This case is no different. We won't see a lot of deflation this time around. Um, for land values, really, I think as long as we can maintain a positive rate of movement in uh, the food economy, the farm economy, uh, I don't expect negative impacts on land values. Um, however, it's all about, you know, can it generate a, a sustainable return? Can agriculture continue to generate a sustainable return in the face of higher interest rates. That's what it's going to come down to. It's all about real returns in the face of uh, higher interest rates. So, and, and that, and what you just spoke to is sort of the mechanism behind what a lot of the conversations that have happened lately around land is when people talk about land values and predicted, you know, the predictions at the beginning of the year were that we're probably, we're not moving towards a, a decline in land values. What right. we're probably looking at is a plateau things are going to level off. And and what you just spoke to is the mechanism behind that because right. prices of food, it's not like, it's not like wheat is, you know, I'm going to make up prices right now. So please don't judge me on the prices. <laughs> like wheat is going to be like five bucks a pound and it's not going to drop the one yeah. all of a sudden because one economically, that's just how it happens. You don't, once people are willing to pay a certain price, you don't see companies marking down the price of the product because people unless they just stop buying it altogether. Right. And, and so like you won't see that. And, and people are not going to stop eating anytime soon, to my knowledge, unless they come up with a way to like convert air into food or something. Right. Like right. that's not going to happen. Um, so 
we're looking at a at a plateau stage in terms of land values, especially cropland values, right? Because if it makes food, people are going to utilize it. Um, the price of inputs is going to change, and you know we don't know what's going to happen. Like like we saw with natural gas, right? That influenced the, the price of fertilizer through last year um, pretty heavily. So as we move forward. There's, there's this interesting dynamic where you have landowners who have financed at historically low prices. You have um, lands that is going to market, but now to get a loan in it, it's remarkably higher prices or people who want to sell off and buy at new locations. Is, is there, there's kind of a, there, there's a lot of landowners now that are sort of upside down in terms of market value where you have, you know, I've got, a thousand acres financed at like 3.5%. And I want to sell that and buy in another state or, or whatever it is, yeah. but I've got to buy there at like 6.5%. And, and, but now, so I can't get the same amount of, of land for the same price. I've got a downgrade, like I'm sort yeah. of upside down there. So is it, is it a matter of people just need to get more efficient if they want to utilize, if they want to buy, sell, or is, you know, and I guess the big question is, is a 1031 exchange now the most valuable thing you could probably do? Well, so so I'll say there's a there's a lot of dynamics. What you're talking about is sort of uh, a similar to what we see in the housing markets at, at this yeah, time, too, yeah. where there's just no supply because everyone's kind of hunkered down and either they're totally comfortable where they are, like where I am. I don't want to ever sell. You know, I got a low, low interest rate mortgage. Like I got enough space. Like I'm never going to sell my house. But the people who want to live in my neighborhood are desperately hoping that I'll sell my house. Um, and I think in agriculture, you have some similarities there where families, unless they need to sell, are probably going to try not to. And so it's going to create this artificial drop in the supply of land, which then when something does come up for sale, probably continues to see a boost from uh, uh, just the lack of other properties available. So maybe they're not selling for the 25,000, you know, the eye popping headline grabbing numbers that you used to see, but they're selling for average or slightly above average of what might be expected for that type of property uh, at, at this time. So we're seeing, I think a lack of supply come to market because of lower interest or because of higher interest rates and people who own land are kind of comfortable with where they're at. Um, that can change for the, for, with a couple of things, right? It could be um, transitions, family transitions, right? Can open up things. So uh, a long-term landowner operator of a farm passes away. All of a sudden the kids have some different ideas of what to do with that property, right? So that can unlock land and increase the supply uh, or uh, a lower farm economy. So maybe, uh, you know, take a divot out of the farm economy in the next couple of years. Perhaps that's something that unlocks people's need to put more land into market. Or, you know, there's like tax, you know, there's there's things that can be done from a tax uh, uh, base, like the 1031 exchange, and then that can unlock value and maybe cause some transactions to, to loosen up. But until something happens, it's almost like uh, the supply is going to stay artificially low, and just like in the housing market, you've got a lack of land coming up for sale, and that's keeping some pressure on land values. If that changes, that's going to be the thing, the catalyst that could take uh, land values and make them more volatile or put some downward pressure on. So you spoke to people kind of sitting on land right now and watching the market is, and it's a, you know a justified fear reaction. I think is is sort of, is sort of where it is. Do you do you think that the the fear reaction that we are seeing is is um, I want to say logical, but could, but that that makes it sound like it could be illogical as the opposite, and that's not the case. Right. But 
is it is it justified that there is something to worry about or is like should people be sitting on it and and again that's more this is an opinion thing i don't want yeah. i don't want to put you in the position of giving the official you know, sort of insight on it um unnecessarily but like are you know sitting on the sideline is that a wise move right now for people that are holding land or is it still a decent time to make a move well, you know, I think every single operation, every single landholder, every single investor in land probably has a different uh, perspective on that, right? So everybody's going to have different. I'm I'm 100% pro economic situational decision making. So it's very difficult to to give sort of broad strokes, you know, opinion of is it a good idea or a bad idea? Because it's going to be different depending on the operation that you talk to, whether or not they should, you know, if they've got good access to capital at low cost, maybe they don't need to liquidate land. But some may say, hey, look, I need to free up some capital to make some moves in other places, other states, other counties. Uh, And they may see an attractive, hey, I can sell now and then I can park it in in you know, one-year treasuries at very attractive rates, right? So there's very, it's going to be highly situational, highly dependent on the economics and the uh, balance sheets and the income statements of the operation itself. But these are, I think that now is the time as, as everybody starts to recalibrate, recalculate, now's the time to get strategic. And that's one piece of advice I always give out to bankers and, and farmers, no matter who I'm talking to. In times of change, like now is the time that you need to make yourself, give yourself the most optionality uh, and get prepared to make strategic decisions because this is the times of change when you're pivoting from a good economy to a bad economy or a bad economy to a good economy. That's the time that having a little bit of working capital, having the optionality makes it, gives you the edge over your uh, competitors and the people uh, in your, in the communities whom you're looking at to buy land from or sell land to. So I'm all for situational economics and giving yourself as much optionality as you can. And if that means sitting out for a little bit, that means that's what that means. If it means making some trades transactions, that could mean that as well. Man, that was a dangerous question to ask. You just fielded that beautifully. That was like, <laughs> I'm impressed. Because it, it, it's, it is, if you paint with broad strokes, you're gonna miss something. Um, so what you just spoke to, I think is, is of value to anybody listening. Um, the the land industry in general, just because of how loans work in agriculture, like you can, there's there's ag lending, which works a little differently. It's easier to acquire than say, and, and a lot of what we work with is recreational land, yeah. tends to be almost completely cash driven because it's non-developed land, it's non-income producing producing land. But in general, is the land industry a little more insulated from interest rate risk because of the amount of cash that's involved? Because you, you're not, it's not like residential where you can put down 5% and get a house, right? right? Like it, it doesn't run like that. So is, is there some insulation there just due to how it functions? Yeah, for, for sure. I, I think there's a lot less cash flow risk because of the lower loan to value advance rates that this industry lends again. So if you look at the average uh, loan in the secondary market, it's trading at something like 55% or 60% is the average LTV. Um, very different than what you would see in the secondary for residential, which is more like 90% or 95% loan to value. Uh, so I do think that that creates a lot less cash flow risk. I don't think about it as interest. I think that is like, well, hey, you just need less money to service the asset itself. Uh, because you've borrowed a lot less. So even if interest rates move up and down, you're not going to be super stressed out with payments on the loan. And there's a lot of equity for you to cash in on should there be 
some cash flow constraints down the line. So uh, for sure, I think that takes some of the pressure off. Uh, I also think, hey, having more people think 10, 15, 25, 30 year fixed rate terms, I think that takes a lot of the pressure off. Residentials kind of moved that direction over the last 30 years with a, a little bit of a blip in 2005, six and seven, when everybody went adjustable on the second and third and fourth homes. Um, but other than that, I think in, in the ag space, people tend to think a little bit longer term. Uh, and then that's helped, I think, take a lot of interest rate risk off the table as well. Got you. And so different market dynamics, um, people looking to enter the agricultural market that are yeah. not currently in. So that's, People that are already in the market, they already have typically the cash on hand, at least as leverage to, to be able to put into something else or understanding or having the reserves there to be able to expand or, you know, to to get the cash on hand and to, to purchase new land. But people that are new to market, what is sort of their avenue to do so? Yeah, I think they're in the toughest spot here. So anybody who's yeah. who's yeah. got some capital wants to put it to work. I mean, this is the agriculture is a super capital intensive, uh, intensive business. Uh, the land's expensive, the equipment's expensive, the inputs are expensive, right? So it's really a difficult thing to start up at scale uh, with without. So so people who have capital, I think, will find it relatively easy to put it to work. Uh, as long as that you know some of the supply demand stuff that I talked about in terms of land markets frees up a little bit trying to get cow. So if you're a new farmer and you want to go to a bank and say, I need a loan to buy some land, that that's going to be the toughest conversation because land is more expensive. The cost of borrowing, the cost of capital is more expensive. Uh, and a lot of banks, you know, have to ask a lot of questions. There's a lot of, you know, transactions costs with starting up that relationship, but it's very doable. I think lenders love working with um, new beginning borrowers, bringing people into the agricultural uh, uh, ecosystem and, and family. So I think there's a lot of bankers out there who are looking for new relationships and younger, uh, you know, energy in the agricultural space. There's also a lot of great, uh, programs for the, with the USDA. So for new beginning, small, uh, farming operations, there are grant programs to help with down payments. There are, uh, guarantee programs to help with, um, access to credit. So if you were maybe trying to get something like a higher, leverage loan, like maybe not a 99% leverage loan, like you could do in the resi world, but maybe something higher than 60% that you tend to see in the um, uh, more retail ag credit space. The USA has programs to help get that type of credit out into the marketplace. And they do really do a good job, I think, of managing interest rates. So they're not charging 12 or 14% on that higher uh, leverage loan. It's something more in market that farmers can afford um, on the, the, the revenues from the farm. So I say, Hey, strike up a conversation with the bankers, go to the banks to have those conversations, get, build those relationships, but also look at the USDA programs, uh, that are designed to bring people into agriculture and really help build that, uh, community and ecosystem. So last two questions. And like I said, I want to respect your time. I know you got a day to get onto and everything, but, um, I wanted to ask you one, put on the crystal ball and sort of give what you think is coming up in the next, let's say, let's say six months, because sure. year is impossible. Um, but in the next six months, what we're looking at market wise, and, and specifically towards land markets, and and sort of like how that's functioning. And then what I want to do is too is just give you an opportunity to throw a plug for Farmer Mac and talk about Farmer Mac's role within that ecosystem and sort of what 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 they're evolving into 
or what what PharmaMac is looking to do to work with people as the next few months come along in the market. Yeah, you bet. Uh, we'll start with the crystal ball. You know, I'll put I'll get my yeah. my little uh, the mentalism hat. You know, and and try to come up with a couple of uh, uh, predictions without getting too far over my skis here. Um, look, you, you, you read all the stuff from the federal reserve. They just did a, another quarter point raise, um, in the last week or two weeks, depending on uh, when we go to air. Um, so you read all the information about there. It seems like they're sort of shifting from uh, active fight of inflation to more of a, uh, passive, uh, a monitoring fight on inflation. So what I read when I, when I look at those, some of those statements is, Hey, we're not done, but we're also not trying to, to continue to raise interest. Like we're not raising interest rates just to raise interest rates. Right. We think that we're threading that needle appropriately and we'll be data driven. So as I look at what could happen in the labor markets, I'm watching those to say, Hey, are those going to soften anymore? Is the access to credit going to soften anymore? What's going to be the thing that could, uh, cause that recessionary uh, a state that w- might trigger a release from the Fed to start lowering those um, the federal funds rate, and I that that's why I'm just going to be completely data dependent, right? So I think the labor markets are holding up pretty well. Um, I look at the housing markets; they're holding up pretty well, and I think we're in this sort of nice, steady state environment where a lot of the economic data says, "Hey, things aren't bad. They're not gr- as good as they were in 2021, but they're not bad." Uh, and then if that's the case, then I think the Fed kind of holds steady at the current rate. So 550. So if, if you know, data dependent, um, you look at maybe 550 is their terminal rate. Now, if inflation picks up, I think they continue to rise. If inflation goes down, maybe they hold and then eventually release. But I think over the next six months, uh, I think steady as she goes is probably Chair Powell's uh, uh, daily affirmation, right? Let's just keep it steady as she goes. Uh, in terms of land markets, I do think, you know, we'll start to see some some pickup seasonally. So you get into third, fourth quarter, that's when you see a lot of activity uh, uh, as the harvest completes and people start to look at balance sheets for next year. Uh, you do see activity pick up and I expect it to pick up a seasonally, but B, I think people are starting to get used to the interest rates. At first it was a shock. I don't want to do anything. My God, six, seven, eight percent. This is totally new to me and I don't want to be in this position. But the more people I talk to, they're still uh, sticker shocked, but they're also making those decisions that they're thinking more long term about strategically about asset acquisition, a liquidation, those kind of they're making those decisions more strategically and less on cash flows the, from, from year to year. So I think that will um, put some more land on the market as well as drive some demand for land in the third and fourth quarter. So I, I expect land markets will either return to, you know, that seasonal level, or maybe uh, at least just pick up a little bit from where they are today um, as people realize, hey, maybe interest rates are going to hold at this level for a little bit. They're not going to go up a lot more, but they're also not going to go down a lot more. And certainty creates the gr- the greatest foundation for business planning. Uh, and I think we're going to start to see that come to fruition this year. Awesome. And, t- and again, tell me a little bit about Farmer Mac and sort of the role that they're playing in this economy and, and you know, in, in the environment that we're in. And, you know, you giving your time is useless unless you get to plug yourself. Right. So, um, you know, but tell, tell me a little bit about that and sort of like how how Farmer Mac is working with people moving forward. And, yeah. And going through. Well, I, I'm happy to. And thank you for giving me my uh, thir- the, the 30 second commercial yeah, yeah, uh, for Farmer Mac. <laughs> Um, it, it, look, I've, I've worked at Farmac for almost 20 years. It's a really exciting, cool place to work. It's a, 
um, 35 year old institution. It's a government sponsored enterprise, meaning that, you know, 35 years ago, Congress said, we need a company that can come in and provide support to ag lending and rural state transactions specifically. And we've been around ever since. Uh, we came about in the 1980s farm crisis. I mentioned that once. We talked about it twice. Um, and uh, coming out of the farm crisis, there was a lot of questions about, hey, what could be done to help create more liquidity for ag real estate loans uh, to, to give you know banks a place to sell them, to give other lending institutions a place to 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 make and sell loans. And a, you know, a lot of lenders at the time said it would be great if we had something like the residential markets have. We don't have any place. I make a loan. I got to sit on my books for. 20 years and I'm a bank, what am I supposed to do? I have to make a short-term loan because that's how banks manage assets, right? It's got asset liability management. But if you make a secondary market, all of a sudden, maybe I can sell that loan. I can offer a 30-year fix or I can offer more uh, beneficial terms that help uh, farmers, ranchers, rural Americans manage their interest rate risk better. So that's how FarmerMac was born, kind of coming out of that uh, 1980s farm financial crisis and ever since, we've evolved in lots of ways to serve uh, rural America. So we do rural infrastructure lending. So uh, helping cooperatives uh, achieve lower costs of uh, 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 delivering, you know, telecommunications and electricity for for the hundreds of co-ops out there that provide power and connectivity to to rural Americans. We have USDA guaranteed line of business. So we're helping the USDA expand their access to credit, making sure banks all across the country can participate in those. USDA guaranteed programs. We've worked with over 1,500 different lenders uh, to provide access to capital and credit and uh, lower the costs at those institutions. And they pass those right along to farmers and ranchers in the form of lower uh, uh, loan interest rates and more favorable terms and conditions than maybe they could offer themselves. Uh, so we've been growing the business uh, ever since, about a $26 billion operation today. So we're very active in lots of different markets and looking at all the ways that we can uh, to make conditions better, easier, faster, more efficient for agriculture, for, for, for farm lending, and for the food supply chain and rural infrastructure. And, and, and that's the uh, elevator pitch uh, in, a, in a couple minutes or less. And you spoke to the USDA options that are available for, say, somebody new to market. Um, and sort of y'all are y'all are the ones that are helping drive that right from behind the scenes. Yeah, it's one of our one of our many programs, right, is to uh, um, uh, buy the guaranteed portion. So if the USDA makes a guarantee that there's a place for a bank to sell that guaranteed portion and do it at an efficient and low cost uh, uh, transaction, right? So we're help, we're helping to create liquidity in that product for the USDA, and the USDA has other on balance, so they keep the loans themselves. They have several loans that they keep themselves, and we've seen people piggyback those loans together. Uh, so there's lots of really interesting and creative ways that can be um, that you know we work with lenders to help them uh, structure the best deal possible for farmers and ranchers. And as as far as functionally in the marketplace, Farmer Mac, do they work? You spoke about the work that you do with institutions, USDA, lending to banks and things like that. Is there is there pieces of that that work direct to consumer or is it primarily behind the scenes that, that you function? 
Yeah, we're all behind the scenes. So our primary customer, B2B, right? So we work with the lending institutions and then they're the front ends that go out and work retail with uh, farmers and ranchers and consumers uh, directly. So we have no, you know, there's no Farmer Mac uh, retail office that you could walk into and say, hey, I'd like to get a loan from Farmer Mac. It's all working with our great uh, network of lenders all across the country where we have lenders in 50 states, uh, plus some territories, I believe, who are active in their communities, making loans, and then using our programs to enhance um, and create additional value for the for the farmers and ranchers in their communities. Yeah, and I think that's important to know because if, if you, you know, I'm sure people see Farmer Mac on things, and it's like, well, what is it, and how does you know, unless they unless they're knowledgeable in that area, like you're kind of working in the shadows, you know, you're Batman, right? Um, so, <laughs> you know. We, we, it's not something that you're going to interact with directly, but you, you receive the benefit of the work that you do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Our our, our goal is not to, to um, uh, intervene in the great relationships that are built between the lenders and the communities that they serve. Our role is to provide uh, uh, great liquidity, you know, uh, re- reliable product, and we're looking to for ways to improve access to capital using technology, you know, financial technology, but also just, you know, the transactional cost that it takes to get a mortgage. How can we do that better, which is going to reduce the cost to the farmer and speed up the access to capital? So those are the kind of things we think about. It's more the ecosystem. How can we deliver the best possible experience to the lender? And then that lender can pass on all those benefits to the farmers. Excellent. Well, hey, Jackson, again, I want to respect your time. I'm taking you a few minutes over here. I'm sure you have something to move on to. So I, I just... Thank you for taking the time to to have this discussion. I think there's a lot of value in here for anybody listening to sort of have a grasp on the market. Um, any any sort of like last piece you want to throw out here before we jump off? No, no. Hey, I appreciate the time and uh, always willing to talk interest rates, land values, uh, ag economy. I mean, that's you. You there's no taking me over a few minutes. I will just keep going as long as <laughs> you, you are recording. I will keep going. So thank you for your time. Hey, that's a dangerous thing to say to me. I'll be on the phone, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> this concludes episode number 53 for the National Land Realty podcast, discussing Federal Reserve interest rate hikes and their impact on land with Jackson Takish, chief economist at Farmer Mac. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.